go. All right. This is going to be thorough and fast and not require too much editing, obviously. We won't have that woman here to make everything not work. iron brains a podcast that knows when it has shit the bed wasted two hours of everyone's time and then spent the night having throwback high school and college anxiety dreams about getting to the end of the semester and realizing that you haven't been to class in two months and having no idea what is going to be on the exam and then even which desk is yours or what time class is supposed to be in the creeping shame and terror of being found out and then waking up the next day, absolutely refusing to listen to and edit that shit, and instead insist on trying it all again tonight. My name is Bob, sitting across the way from my good friend and co-host. That's Abe. How you doing tonight, Abe? Still doing well, Bob. Yeah, here we are. Lori is not here. Lori cannot join us tonight because tonight is... Tuesday, May 18th, day. 2021. We're back second night in a row. Take another whack at this thing. I, I suspect it'll just be the first time for those listening. Yeah, maybe I'll just release the whole two hours completely unedited so that everyone will know <laughs> that I was not lying when I said that was a garbage pile of shit episode that we recorded last night. Yeah, I don't know what the problem was. I mean, I... The part of the problem was that I didn't really want to talk about any of the things that we decided to talk about. All right, that's always a problem. Although we we have somehow managed to make it work in the past, or at least enough to where it wasn't a big enough reason to redo it. Yeah, and I'm sure that I'm. I mean, I'm not sure because I refuse to listen to it. I'm probably exaggerating how annoying last night would have sounded to anyone else, but to me, it was boring and terrible. And I apologize uh, to you and Lori both. For making you endure that, I feel like uh, it's my fault because I sort of drive the bus here. And if I'm driving the bus into the fucking guardrails and uh, falling asleep at the wheel, it's not going to go well. That, that's not to say we are raising any expectation about this episode. Oh, no, this is going to be a very <laughs> also likely equally boring. But I have more energy tonight and that's I'm right. more excited to be here generally. So. <laughs> And in fact, I've included in the rundown a couple of things that we talked about last night. <laughs> like anyway, so like um, setting us up for failure. The uh, listeners will uh, will get a dose of second take, Abe. You know, I'm very good at the second. Crack Man, at you are good when you've already made the point once before. <laughs> you have to reiterate it the next day. That's for sure. So, part of the reason that last night didn't go well like I said it was it was things that I didn't want to talk about but also that I was still like working through a take about why I didn't want to talk about those things and it's not exactly a new thought the the thought is basically just everybody is way too certain about everything and that goes a lot for the discourse around the CDC reversing mask mandates or recommendations and a bunch of other stuff that we'll talk about later tonight. But I did write up 
a sort of little mini essay here to get us going in that direction. And this will be, so I'll, I'll read it. You can interrupt as you see fit, if you see fit, or we can talk about it at the end. And this is me purging the bad feeling that prevented me from, uh, from performing as I'm uh, up to my own standards last night. All right, so here we go. One of the first points I tried to make on this podcast back when we first came back a little over a year ago was that it felt like Donald Trump had infected every aspect of life, that he transcended politics so completely that by the last year of his presidency, five full years into the Trumpeting, it was difficult to talk about anything at a cultural level without feeling the presence of Trump directly or indirectly. This was his whole game, of course. All he cared about was dominating the national attention, making sure that everyone was talking and thinking about him all the time, whether it was national politics, where it made some sense to be focused on him, or any of a countless number of domains where it did not, such as college football, a hurricane in or around Alabama, the use of the words Merry Christmas, NBA or award show television ratings, wind turbines, or pandemic response. He was, and is, of course, Still, the ultimate blowhard, someone with a definitive opinion on every possible subject, someone for whom the only way to be wrong was to not have a take. Now, brief aside, I recognize that's pretty rich coming from the guy uh, with the personal brand website and multiple <laughs> blogs through the years and a second uh, season of a podcast spread out over the course of over a decade that's gone on for like 200 shows or something at this point. But he still uh, has you beat. You don't plaster your name on everything. You even change on occasion the name entirely. That's true. I try to make it as obscure <laughs> and difficult to identify as me as possible most of the time. <laughs> anyway, this absolute constant certitude of Donald Trump is what made him such a fundamentally political creature, whether he ever ended up president or not. Even when our political leaders are professorial types who offer measured and thoughtful and nuanced responses to difficult subjects, the thing that appeals is their certainty. Their certainty in that they embody the hope and change for which America is so hungry, for example. The certainty that the moral arc of the universe bends toward justice. The certainty that we have a collective understanding of what that justice even is. The certainty that we are on God's side and the axis of evil is not. The certainty that there is nothing that is wrong in America that can't be fixed by what is right with America. The certainty that we are some shining city on a hill, God-blessed and providence dictated to succeed, worthy and deserving of all our good fortune and the pitiable victims of malevolent forces should we falter. Certainty itself as infallible moral compass. Certainty itself as proof of its own righteousness. And when I say things like Donald Trump has infected everything or everything is culture war now, I think what I'm actually complaining about is how thoroughly certain everyone seems to be about everything. Probably this is not actually anything new, but social media and the current wider mass media environment seem to demand absolute certainty more than ever. The hot take economy certainly is not new, but social media and a consolidating, increasingly subscription-based mass media environment encourage stories, headlines, and opinions that are more and more certain, more and more strident. If you run the Atlantic or the New Yorker or the New York Times or the Washington Post, your business model depends on readers becoming frustrated with the monthly paywall and forking over their credit card to buy a subscription. 
So you choose stories and generate headlines that will command the most attention. And it is stridency and certainty that commands attention. Derision of those who have it wrong. The shame and opprobrium of your ideological enemies and inferiors. If you run a Twitter account, the incentives are precisely the same. Certainty is also what leads John Oliver to deliver a preachy ten minutes on the doubtless fact of Israel as war crimes and evildoer, and Palestine as blameless victim, and for that video to be shared widely as somehow explaining it simpler and better than the media has in 50 years. Because apparently the real problem with the Israel-Palestine conflict is that we've been blinded to the truth by the obscuring haze of complicated uncertainty, that instead there is always a simple truth. It is knowable, and I, of course, know it. Certainty allows people to make grand pronouncements about who is with us and who is against us, such that anybody not wearing a mask is an enemy and a threat. That same certainty then collapses into terrified neurosis when somebody tells them that they don't need a mask any longer. That same certainty that prevents us from admitting, probably, kids never needed a mask outside in the first place. The certainty of trust the experts or trust the science when an honest expert would be telling us, well, we're not sure, actually. We just don't know. In this environment... The few skeptics unwilling to accept the absolute certainty of the world as presented to them by what has been reduced to two competing, totalizing worldviews are perceived as mere contrarians, and usually dismissed, as either secret double agents for the other side or nihilists. It's all so simple, the certaintists tell us. What can't you see? You must be one of them. Or worse, you must not really believe anything at all. If there's anything I really like about Catholicism... And this is a stretch. It is its <laughs> deeply embedded cultural commitment to doubt. The competing certainty of evangelical Christianity always weirded me out. On the other hand, oh, I'm saved by Jesus. I'm going to heaven no matter what. Really? It's just that simple? The bizarre, contradictory instinct that lets the God-fearing types sneer at the agnostics that it's the non-believers that are the arrogant ones, while those who believe they've discovered the fundamental truths of life and the universe are the humble ones. That same instinct thrives in our current cultural moment. Certainty of belief, the conviction that it's all actually very simple. We've got this all figured out. Don't you understand how progress even works? Is but humble deference to obvious truths. Doubt? Arrogance. Uncertainty? Both sidesism. Wondering if, maybe, we just don't know? Heresy. And it's this same certainty that, when proven wrong, retreats into shriveling denials that they were claiming anything like that at all. It never looks back. Certainty is for the moment. It is of this moment. It doesn't matter what came before. What matters is now. They're sure of it. Anyway, Good I got out the bed. Uh, just two quick points. Uh, one, just uh, listening and, and, and following along here, I do wonder, because it is true that there is comfort that people find in certainty, and that's why it's so appealing. Like, yes, you know, it's black and white, good, bad, all that stuff. I, right. I wonder see, if also the, see also the history of all religions. Right. And so, like, it's, it's kind of with the tools, the technology we have today with the Internet – it's kind of difficult to push back against that and try to leave room for doubt and uncertainty and just let it play out 
like right because we have access to more information than we could have possibly imagined ever before right right but so also how, how could it possibly be that we could be any that we could be less certain now than we were before right could you think that if you just did a couple of seconds of research or maybe a couple of minutes of research you can kind of find your own answers but if the first thing that you heard is a clear certain thing that aligns with what you already believe you have no incentive to you know, verify those statements, right? Right. Uh, and the, the the point that you made at the end about, you know, when they get it wrong, they just kind of slink off and just pretend it never happened. Kind of reminds me of the old uh, Adam Carolla's and where it's like, yeah, but still, where like an entire argument is made and then somebody says, actually, none of that is true. And it's like, you can't just admit that you're wrong. Right. You just... <laughs> So yeah, yeah, but, but still. still yeah. <laughs> so the, the the thing is, people don't even do that much. You know, when when the 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 claims that they made throughout the the last year in particular, but the last five years or beyond, they don't even have the the decency to do even like a in a roundabout way. Like I got that wrong. Because yeah, but still, in a joking way, it's kind of admitting that I recognize that what I said doesn't make sense anymore. Yeah. And it's certainly not a new complaint from me. I don't know why I felt the need that it had to get out in this fashion at this time, but it's like it's the sort of thing that like builds up after a while and it just starts I start seeing it everywhere where just everybody is so absolute and it was probably the Oliver clip that made its way around Twitter on Monday morning. With with Oliver and the reason one of the reasons why I kind of stop watching him on a regular basis uh is that his format is so is such that everything has to fit that mold, right? It doesn't matter how complicated or nuanced or whatever uh, a topic is, everything has to hit the same beat. So, like, right. you know, you, you sent me the clip that was making the rounds, but I watched the entire um, episode, and, and basically they, they had one part about the Israel-Palestinian situation, and the other part, the main piece, was on guns. But it fits the same mold and so there's no room it's not built for nuance the most nuance you'll get will be like a throwaway and i get it's more complicated than i'm making it kind of right, like right. A, to, a, a throwaway to be sure right right like a, right. a half a sentence that says to be sure all of this shit that i'm saying is total nonsense in the face of uh, the real world and how complicated it actually is right? right he actually basically says that in that israel clip that's going around and then ends with the and they're all just a bunch of war criminals thing right. anyway. Like, right. And it's because – and it's funny because years ago when he was when, – when the show first came on, you and I used to joke about how he was just constantly going for the lowest hanging fruit imaginable, right? Right. That the, the topics that he was picking were just the, the absolute easiest things to be dunked upon that you could possibly imagine. And he, right. did, he did it for years. And what's funny is that he – that same format doesn't work with things – that are more complicated, right? That right. that if you if you have exhausted all of the low hanging fruit and all of the rotten fruit that's now fallen off the tree and is at the bottom of the tree, you have to go for topics that that are more complicated and don't and cannot actually be jammed into the format that you're talking about. Now they can be. It just makes you seem like a fucking moron, right? Right. <laughs> uh, and that's that's the thing is that he's doing the same thing that he's always been doing. It's just that now he's had to move on to things that are more difficult. Right. And anytime you do that with that same using the same method, it's going to be 
particularly frustrating to someone like me. Right, and and his, and his show, even though it is a weekly, compared to the old uh, Stewart and Colbert shows where they were basically Monday through Thursday, they they had a lot more variety of topics. You know, the the shows like basically the new generation of those kind of shows are very limited in scope. They their style is very limited to where you have to make the stupid jokes and then you have to make the black or white point. This is true. That is not true. And then, you know, there's still elements of the lowest hanging fruit where the the clip selections and, you know, it's a comedy show. So I'll grant them that. But the clip selections are basically low hanging fruit, just like the dumbest yokels that they'll, you know, use to make a right. point that, oh, this is what the other side of this argument is saying, and it's always just some dumb idiot. Right. It's no different than building than building a news story around somebody who has six Twitter followers who is who tweeted right. out something outrageous, but the reporter, by doing a word search on Twitter, happened to find it and right. has decided to build a whole narrative around what people on Twitter are saying about this subject or another. Right. And also on, on, on a larger point, one thing that I've noticed, uh, and it could, it, you know, I always think that it kind of explains why people take certain positions when they otherwise would not. And it's basically they're kind of reacting to somebody that they feel is on the other side. So, like, with an issue like the lab leak theory that was kind of floated a year ago, when it first came out, it was basically being used as pure deflection. Basically, this is a problem that came to America's shores because of China, the Chinese government, and the lab leak, right? So basically, no matter how true or untrue that statement was, because at that point, we wouldn't have known one way or the other. You need to do a little more digging. But the only reason why it was raised was just to deflect, you know, culpability on the Trump administration. So it was just used right. for it's, that purpose. It's no accident that it was Trump and Tom Cotton and Mike Pompeo who were most loudly raising the possibility that this came out of a lab in Wuhan, right? Right. And so recognizing that, you would think that people would say, even though that they're using this or trying to weaponize this possibility, um, I still can't dismiss it outright. But because they are using it in such a way, that necessarily means that they're wrong, right? So a lot of people took positions last year, throughout most of last year, without doing any further digging in, that it is 100% not possible, dismiss it outright, for no other reason than it would be a benefit politically to their political opponents. And so a lot of people right. behave in such a way where it's like you're kind of acting out of position and you're putting yourself in in these compromising positions to where you don't actually believe this yourself. You have, you really up until that point had no position one way or the other, right? You really didn't have any idea where the virus came from, but because somebody on the other side said, so you have to take the opposite view and then you stick to it despite whatever new evidence may come down the road, you know? And, uh, if something did, you know, nothing really has come out to say that it's definitely that, but let's say it did like a year or two from now or five years from now, the yeah, but still thing would would come to play, you know, or maybe at that point to say, well, now we know more and we'll just try to move on. Right. But the initial position is this definitely didn't happen. Like, you don't know that. You're just saying right. that and hopefully. I, I can't help but think, and you can dismiss this as you see fit, that it has gotten worse. Like that something about the way the media ecosystem is currently set up, whether it's Twitter, whether it's 
the way the cable news networks have fractured and and become increasingly partisan. Like I I I absolutely think it's Twitter and Facebook has something to do with this. But the the extent to which the the sort has happened and there's no longer any sort of communication between sides, it seems like that has done nothing but concretize this awful partisan divide that we're dealing with where you cannot have any conversation about anything without it being about whose side you're on, whether right. you're a, now we would determine you'd be a, either a Trumpist or a non-Trumpist. And that's basically the only divide, unless we're talking about other cultural issues, then we'd be in the, the woke versus the non-woke. Although those two things tend to align uh, fairly neatly, though not certainly not perfectly. Right. And I mean, that's just a product of the where we are today with all of the choices online, on TV, cable, streaming. So there are so many more choices. You know, back in the day, there was such a thing as a captive audience, right? You had three channels, you maybe had 10 channels, maybe you had 50 channels, you know, and so on. But for like news, there would only be so many outlets available to you. So there was a captive audience and they all kind of went to the same sources for that information. And then the, those media outlets had to kind of play broad, and then when right, you're not and that's, so so there's a there's an irony there that I'm I've not heard articulated particularly well elsewhere that I think you're driving at which is that you have these three networks basically four if you count the national public like PBS and right. NPR or whatever right. but basically three media empires that are competing for eyeballs and ear holes all across the country, right? And so they cannot afford to write off the political whims of or the, the, the ideology of a full half of the country. Right. To say nothing of the fact that the political parties didn't believe that they could do that at that point because there was so much more diversity of thought within political parties as well. Right. But in any event, you couldn't afford to lose Republicans if you were ABC in the 1960s, right? That would That's right. way too broad a swath right. of the public. But right. ironically, with increasing competition for news eyeballs, you end up with a situation where you're allowed to hemorrhage giant portions of the broader public in favor of a much more specific subset, right, right. in order to make money. So it's this weird, perverse thing where more competition actually led to that uh, is, a yeah. worse product. Right, because basically it is kind of an upside-down thing where in the past – Everybody went to you for information, and you couldn't afford to lose anyone, and so you had to play it broad. And then when you have a lot of choices, uh, then you have – you know, each choice has a fewer slice of the pie. And so then now people are seeking the best version of what they think news is. And so now you're competing for a much smaller And it's smaller just group. the thing that tells them what they think they know yeah, already and tells right. them what they want to hear, which right. is how you end up with a whole e media ecosystem that is devoted to absolute certainty. I, I, right? I, I do wonder on that point, uh, because I think a lot, you know, if you, if, you, if you stress the point, they probably would admit to that point uh, when it comes to the opinion shows. But do you think that even with the selection of news during the, the, what should be the straight news portion of the cable news channels, they're still seeking the coverage that they want, right? But do you think most people are aware of that, that they're seeking? No, I don't think most people are aware of that. I, oh, yeah. I absolutely do not. Because, I mean, if you're watching Hannity, then obviously, you're, you know, you want to hear his take on the day's news. But, like, if you're watching the Jake Tapper show or the, the Meathead Bread Bears show or whatever— there's, you're still kind of getting a 
the presentation, the, the, the Chirons are doing a lot of the heavy lifting with the, the right. characterization of the events, you know. Right, uh, to say nothing of even even as dumb as just uh, or the selection of the of the segments that you're going to show over the course of the right. hour, right? Like, right. Because you know that you're the biggest chunk of your audience, if you're Tapper or if you're Brett Bayer, is at the top of the show where you're catching the end of that one opinion programming right. show and at the end of your show when you're leading into the next opinion programming right. part. Like, that's, that's going to be your biggest audience. And if you think that uh, that doesn't factor into how they make their – selections about what they're going to cover you're deluding yourself right and in, in any event uh regardless of how we got here this will continue right because th despite all of the 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 mega giant corporations kind of joining up and and consolidating the news outlet choices will continue to balkanize to where to where you'll have the oans and the young turks and the you know th these already exist now but more of those kind of things where it's like they're too soft on this issue and yeah. and basically the only way you can go is to be more bold and just kind of obnoxious right you can't play it straight because you can just go to pbs for that so you have to go the other yeah. way to get eyeballs yeah and again if, if if there were a simple solution, I would probably now would be the time that I would offer it, and I would uh, be hypocritical about everything that I said at the top, and I would be saying with absolute certainty uh, how I think we can solve this problem. But I don't think it is a solvable problem. I think it's just a current reality. Although I think we could start by deleting Twitter and Facebook right. uh, permanently. From, from yeah, the yeah basically, the, the only hope would be that more and more people realize that you know. Me seeking out information that I want to be true, I'm not learning any more information. In fact, I'm actually – it's ruining what little I do know because it, it kind of colors everything. Um, and, and I don't think a lot of people do the multiple sources thing. Like I'm going to watch a little bit of this and I'll read you know, a long-form magazine thing there. You know, like They're not doing that triangulating the truth thing. They're just right. watching their people and that's it. No, I'm I and I, I am definitely the fucking sicko who goes and watches Tucker Carlson just to find out what's going on over there, right? And I'm not saying that that's like that's not healthy. That's not good either. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I don't recommend it. Yeah, that, that was my one. Like I, just all of the opinion shows I stopped watching. Just I'll watch the morning Sunday shows and whatever. But, but God bless you. At least you know sometimes some you know he'll say something stupid and you can relay it to me, and yeah. I can just watch that segment. All right, let's open up the uh, WGAS news bag. It's time for Who Gives a Shit News. Try to fly through some headlines here in brief and amusing fashion. First of all, last week, taking a great deal of advice, finally, from uh, BrainIron.com website, which <laughs> released a very influential blog in the middle of last week, shortly before the CDC changed their mask guidance. And also, of course, in keeping uh, with wanting to make sure that they got ahead of Abe's prediction about a Memorial Day end Indeed. to the pandemic, the CDC adjusted their mask guidance to what should probably have been the mask guidance all along to say that anybody who is fully vaccinated no longer has to wear a mask outdoors or even indoors uh, if, they, if they so choose. And this was a pretty, at least to us, a pretty straightforward news announcement but there's been a lot of confusion just based on just the reaction you see local news national news everywhere that and and you know 
partly it's because certain states are doing it one way, local cities are doing it another way. Everybody is kind of all over the map. Uh, so like how I guess the information that they provided was pretty straightforward, but how everyone reacted to that straightforward information was chaotic. Right. Well, and also the fact that it was released five months after the first vaccines started going into arms seems confusing to people because the fact is nothing has actually changed. They can say that they got more of the science, they got more data to suggest that this was actually going to be fine if they stopped with the mask stuff, but it, it doesn't, that doesn't seem to be a believable way of understanding what the CDC did last week, that rather it seems that it is at least somewhat politically motivated in, in important ways. Right. And, and, you know, it could be a combination of like the, the, the data that they, that they had, uh, wasn't enough for them to take this approach. And so maybe they were just also waiting, like maybe they had like an internal indicator of uh, consecutive weeks of 10 to 20% week over week drop. You know, so cause I, I imagine that it would have to have been something like that because I don't think the data changed over the last eight weeks, but the number of cases had been on a decline since like April, whenever it ticked up a little bit, uh, the number of deaths and number of hospitalizations. So maybe they're like, if we see like five weeks in a row of week over week declines, then right. we can go ahead and do this. But, you know, they're not communicating this to anybody. They went from like the end of March, Dr. Walensky saying, oh, my God, the sky may fall to, you know, middle of May saying, fuck it, you're good to go. Right. What? But saying, fuck it, you're good to go, like literally within 24 hours of her testifying before Congress that you're actually definitely not good to go either, right? Right. <laughs> right. But, yeah. Basically, it seems it, like wh whatever their official stance is, they have to sell that stance 100%, even though, even though they know that the next day that official stance will change. But until that day, they're selling it 100%, which kind of is very right. – which I understand, and I'm, I'm sympathetic to the idea that they have to have a position and that they right. can't budge from that position until they fucking budge off of that position, right? Right. Uh, but I, I, as I said in the blog, you can find it at brainiron.com, I would appreciate, and I think that a lot of people would appreciate, just in terms of rebuilding trust in the institution, a little bit more humility about everything that's gone on in the last 18 months. Uh, because – Fauci has admitted that he's just lied to people. Like, he's just gone on television and said things that he knew not to be true in an effort to do psychology, do, do mass psychology and mass sociology on a population that he must know can't actually be controlled, right? right. So it's, he's playing these goofy utilitarian games without a functioning utilitarian calculator, right. right? Because there's no such thing. And he's trying to make this math work and, and, and tell these lies or tell these white lies and push us as a country in the right direction or what he believes to be the right direction when the fact of the matter is he can't possibly have known and in fact didn't know right and, 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 and a, a little bit more humility on that on that front i think would go a long way to getting people to stop throwing up the middle finger anytime a so-called expert comes on television and tries to tell them how to live their life right and and, and i do wonder although I do wonder if the Fauci's of the world uh, said that based on the information we, we have, wearing of masks in these outdoor settings, there's really no upside, there's no, no benefit to it, but just as a symbol, you know, because our, our number of vaccinated people is, is not at a high enough level. So basically, I'm just doing it just as a symbolic gesture. Do you think that 
because that would be like an honest thing to say instead of just kind of doing this, oh, it's still beneficial to do this, even though they themselves admit later on that that wasn't the case. Do you think that that people would have been that would be that would be better than what like the mayor of chicago is doing where like Lori lightfoot is going around saying i'm still wearing it because it makes me feel safe even though i'm fully vaccinated right like that cannot be the example that's being set by the civic leaders in this country that even though there is no risk that they're going around with a security blanket wrapped around their face just because it makes them feel safe that is the wrong message to send right and 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 it is likely true that some people do feel that way, and if people in her position, in a public role, they if they started modeling themselves after whatever the science says, then that may kind of give confidence to the other people. But if you're also like, oh my God, I'm fearful too, then what sort of message are you sending to people uh, when it comes to the use of the vaccinations? Uh, let me ask you something, and I was just kind of thinking about this, because the CDC, there's a lot of, they got some flack because of this. Um, they don't actually make any rules as far as what people should be doing. They offer recommendations and guidelines and those kind of things. Do you think right. if they followed my suggestion that I'm going to give right now, it would make a difference? And I'm assuming the answer is no, but let me just say it. So instead of making the recommend, framing it as a recommendation or a guidance, if they just came out and just said, we're going to be presenting information based on the science as we know it, right? So throughout this period, they're offering information as it comes available to them and based on the trend lines and all that stuff. So for this most recent change, if they just came out, instead of saying, if you're fully vaccinated, you can take off the masks. If they instead said, based on the information that we have, once you're fully vaccinated, uh, any sort of added benefit with wearing a mask indoors or outdoors is negligible at best. It is in effect a hat on a hat, right? So if the local and state officials take that information and then they say, well, we still have way too many unvaccinated people. And so we'll still maintain whatever policy we want until there's a tip over. Then, So I think that that's a, that's a plausible way of doing it if they hadn't been offering strict guidance over the course of the last 15 months, right? Right. So they can't go from saying, this is what you need to do, these are our recommendations, and then you have 35 governors or whatever the the number is who are actually implementing those recommendations, following that in step. If instead they had been presenting all along, like, here is what we know, which of course would have been basically nothing, right? Like, it's... If they had just been presenting it as, here is what we know, then it would have been a very short presentation. So instead, they had to come up with these guidelines. So yeah, maybe if... Right, because basically, I mean, because one question I wanted one of these uh, experts to answer or somebody to pose a question to is just, and maybe this would calm the nerves of some people, what is the benefit, like how much is your risk of transmission reduced by... If you're fully vaccinated and you wear a mask versus not wearing a mask, right? Because it is, it, I can't imagine because the vaccine itself is is very effective, right? And so the mask isn't 95. percent These people are not wearing N95 masks; they're wearing just right. some random ass crap, right? So what is the added benefit by wearing that other than just like peace of mind, which is where a lot of people have settled? Like I'm just right. Well, the answer is that there is no added benefit if you're fully vaccinated, right? Like, right. 
And so, like, if it was presented in that way, do you think it would do anything in the way of calming some people to say, you know what, okay, if you present it that way, instead of focusing on people are going to lie, people are going to pretend, if they just say you, if you're fully vaccinated, you're basically, you're putting yourself in the best position indoors, outdoors, any settings, right? Unless you're, like, at a 500-person gangbang or whatever. Like, in most settings, you're fine, even if other people are lying or not, because and 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 if you're going to get it you're going to get it whether you're wearing a mask or not because the mask is just some flimsy thing right and if they had if they had presented it that way and then also said and by the way these are the numbers on vaccines and their efficacy and who's act, who's being hurt by them and they sh- they showed how few people are being hurt by them they showed how relatively few people are even having side effects from these vaccines right. how safe they are how effective they are and then you you increase the the carrot end the way that DeWine is doing in Ohio, which apparently I saw a piece shortly before we came on had a tremendous impact. Yeah, there's an uptick, his, right? Yeah. His goofy lottery idea where he's going to give away a million dollars to five different people who get the vaccine had a tremendous effect on the number of people who were asking for the vaccine over the course of the last few days. Right. If you can come up with more of that sort of stuff and, and if, less, right. less of the heavy-handed nonsense where they're doing it without even knowing any like like that's the thing that drives me nuts and the thing that i think causes people to reject whatever they have to say out of hand is the total failure to acknowledge that we're just doing our best right not we have all of the answers and here's what you should be doing because it's what we're saying but we're just doing our best and we're we didn't know anything 15 months ago. We knew a little bit more a year ago. We knew a little bit more six months ago. And we've just been doing our best. Here's where we screwed up. And here's what we think is best now. And in six months, you're 100% right. We're probably going to have been half wrong about what we're saying now. Right. I, I, I've always thought that, you know, when you, you don't have the capacity to enforce things, you know, one of my... Uh, goofy ideas has always been to have a cap on on laws you know and then just because you can only enforce so many laws and so you can't just be making up new laws every day uh if you can't if you don't have the capacity and the resources to enforce something such as these mass compliance these vaccination uh uh efforts it has to be all carrot and and no stick, right? The stick is not going to work where you're trying to find one person or you're trying to make a big scene because people are going to naturally resist. Like if you're guarding some like, like you know, the White House or something, then it's all it's all carrot. I mean, it's all stick in that situation. You ain't going to get shot down if you do something. We're not going right. to. Well, and you- especially now because what the CDC did is they took away any of the stick, right? Because right. now you can't. Right. None of the governors can send people. You can send the police out to bars and sporting events to enforce uh, a mask mandate that no longer exists. Right. right. That that if that because the governors no longer have any reason to enforce a mask mandate because the CDC says uh, anybody who's vaccinated. So what are you going to send cops out to demand people produce their vaccination papers? Right. We're not at that point yet, certainly. Right. And and we'll never get there because there isn't an effective way to. You just don't have the means to do it. Like you should just be a little more humble in recognizing that in certain situations, just like with uh, at college football games, whenever people storm the 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 field, if there's a rule that says you're not supposed to storm on the field, you can't enforce that. So you need to. You're not going to arrest twenty thousand people. Right, and so like you try to do, and you know, in some cases they'll, you know, because of past incidents, they'll bring down the crossbar. So some. 
drunken idiot doesn't break his neck, you know. So they'll take measures to kind of like mitigate harm, but they'll allow the people to storm the field because there's nothing else you can do. You can't enforce your way out of this. So like efforts like in Ohio with the governor, despite how much more money that he's doing, I, I think you can – the carrot could be a lot smaller, but fine. And if we see the number go up, hopefully other states model that, right, especially the states where the, the, the number of vaccinations has slagged uh, over the last month because that's basically your path forward. Although every, every everyone that I know had it. I mean, my family is still 50-50. There's still uh, some, uh, you know. but Some holdouts? There's still some holdouts where they'll wait until they're – maybe they're waiting – Maybe they're holding out because uh, I, I, some idiot, some uh, person who's already vaccinated was kind of grumbling about how there are all of this additional benefit now. Like you can, there was like a, if you went on a particular day, you can go watch the the Braves play free tickets or this million dollar idea. They're like, oh, how come they didn't offer you know? You're almost encouraging people to to hold off until they get a better deal. Until Kemp says, you know what, I'll do the million dollar idea too, and then somebody wins. You know, it's just. Yeah, the way people think. But, I mean, Georgia's not doing the best, but, you know, we're hanging around. All right, real quick before we run into other stuff on this mask stuff. So I'm curious about the fact that these—so these this guidance gets changed, and what Walensky said on the Sunday shows this week is that we had to change this big piece of guidance before we're able to change any of the other downstream guidance. And it seems like what she's talking about there— is both the summer camp guidance and the school's guidance, that in order to change all of those things, first they have to do the big piece of right. guidance that applies to everybody, and then they can go back and change all of the downstream guidance. And I think that, so as we approach the beginning of summer for schools in the South, and then as it spreads, as we get into the middle of June, most schools around the country will be ending, and summer camps will be starting up. I expect that in the next two weeks or so, before before we get into June or maybe right right after Memorial Day, we will see that what was very restrictive summer camp guidance that came out a couple of weeks ago, where the kids are supposed to be running around their outdoor summer camps with social distancing mandated, with masks mandated, even when you're outdoors. Right. And like in pods, I heard somewhere. like they, they Right, try to- in pods where you're not actually going to be able to interact with the rest of the of the camp, um, I expect that that's going to change fairly dramatically. And at the very least, they're going to lift the you have to wear masks outside the entire time. I'm thing. surprised that there, that still hasn't been like – I mean they, they've more or less said that, that the the chances of you spreading or catching anything else in those kind of settings is very low. That it's – you know, you don't even need to do it. And also the – the number of cases, the average case numbers, is consistently trending down, right? It's consi- so basically that means that and, – and, and, you know, they're doing comparisons where this is the lowest average it's been since like April of last year or this of last year. The earlier we go to the start of the pandemic, the more it becomes like an unfair comparison because we weren't testing people. Their capacity for tests – wasn't up to where it is now, even though we're not at the peak now, but we're right. we're testing a lot more now. And so if we're still getting sixteen on a sixteen thousand on like on a Sunday and then thirty thousand throughout the week and and heading down, that that means that the virus isn't circulating to the level that it was before. And so the chances of outdoor transmission goes even 
you know, it's, it's greatly reduced, you know. Right, when it's already basically none, right? right. That they, don't, they don't have a documented case of a casual interaction outdoors where you're walking by somebody on the sidewalk or whatever and that becoming a transmission event. Like, it's just never happened. Do, and combine that with the fact that kids just don't seem to get it. Young children who are not built like adults, so anybody who's, like, prepubescent, basically. Right. Very few of them have gotten it, and it even smaller minuscule number have died and obviously uh to be sure every child that dies from covid19 is a tragedy and i don't mean to downplay that despite the tone of my voice but at some point we're mitigating against a a risk that just it doesn't line up with reality that far more children are going to drown at summer camp this this year then right, uh, are going to come down with COVID nineteen, right? right? So if we're if if we're really concerned about their health and safety, then we wouldn't allow them to swim at summer camp either. Right. I I I will say uh, with the CDC, if they do take the approach that you're suggesting, basically they're kind of lining everything up to to head towards that sometime in the next few months. I mean, the next few weeks rather, or sometime in June, they should caution people to say that. If you're unvaccinated, you know, the next few months, things will settle down. Things will look like mission accomplished in America. But the virus isn't going to go to go away. And if we hit the fall and winter months and we still have a large number of people who think we'll just ride the coattails of those vaccinated, they're going to have a bad time. Because it's going to come right. back and they're going to get hit and maybe the rest of us will need boosters or whatever. But, like, the people who are exposed – that basically, all of the all of the conditions are favorable to them over the next few months, but that's not going to always be the case. Right, and the more states and school districts and colleges and all of the other institutions, the 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 more local institutions that we are collectively more likely to trust than we are the federal government for various reasons, both good and bad. The more of those more trusted local institutions that come out and say, if you want to do X, where X is go to a Georgia football game with 92,000 other people, where X is have high school football again next year without all of the, you know, where we can have the band, where we can have the cheerleaders, where we can have everybody in the stands, where you can go to the fucking hot dog stand and get a hot dog and a soda without nonsense social distancing, without wearing masks. If you want to do all of those things, get vaccinated. Because if the numbers go up in the fall, we have this sudden spike, we're going to have to do all of this nonsense again. But if enough of you are vaccinated and and whatever other carrots we have to use, not just the promise of a return to normalcy, because people are going to assume that no matter what, we're going to get the return to normalcy, the vaccines be damned. If you have to throw in other carrots uh, along the way, then go ahead and do that. Right, and that's why, and that's why I think these efforts by like the governor of Ohio and other places, they're not wasted efforts. Even if we're going to June and July, they can, they can continue to do these things because you still need more and more people to get vaccinated. So we're kind of in a better footing by come fall. All right, uh, moving on. Next item in the news bag here is that it seems like. After reaching what appeared to be a compromise on a January 6th commission to investigate the uh, all of the nonsense behind the scenes and, and on Capitol Hill itself uh, as it relates to 
uh, Donald Trump's speech and the subsequent storming of the Capitol by his supporters, it seems like now Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell uh, are no longer interested in a January 6th commission that would that would investigate those events in a bipartisan fashion. It seems to be more so uh, McCarthy, because I think at least McConnell's like were open to kind of hearing right. things. McCarthy, his plan seems to be let's muddy the water by having this commission on one event be about many events and events that we can make political hay out of. Right. It'd be like it'd be like Trey Gowdy and Kevin McCarthy agreeing to have the Benghazi hearings also include uh, investigations about how we ended up in the Iraq War thanks to the lies of George W. Bush right. and any and various other Republican failures right. uh, that and, have nothing to do with the events of Benghazi itself. Right, and not even just reg, you know Republican, just like anything, just so you can drown out the the story that you don't want to be talked about. Oh, let's talk about the financial uh, crash. Like, the, let's bring some bankers in. We didn't do a full right. accounting of that. And it's like, well, this is like an investigation on the Benghazi event, which, by the way, I don't know how they made a lot of that, you know, because it was politically beneficial to them to do so. So, like, it wasn't just like, oh, we need to get to the bottom of it. And this is what I was saying earlier with uh, – when people like weaponize something for po- only political aims, but it it has some like on its own some merit, right? And so people will just say, no, this is a stupid political attack. But if you look into it and you just say, okay, let's learn from this. You know, an ambassador died. Everyone just kind of treated like this thing happened. There was some bullshit initial story about some video that upset people, but this was a more calculated than just a spontaneous, you know. Uh, incident right where they, they can't right. use that incident so they can attack and they got to the bottom of it then you you know these you know embassies would be better protected in the future then it would have been a worthwhile effort just like this commission uh for uh, the insurrection what happened why did it take so long why were they dragging their feet all of the the responders to help right instead mccarthy wants to say but for the summer of black lives matter protests and the destruction of various city blocks around the country. But for that happening, we never would have had what happened on January 6th, which is just an absurd non sequitur that is sort of interesting in a sociological way when we're looking back on this 100 years from now and we're talking about it the way we talk about the 70s, like it being a violent time of upheaval and change in American history. Sure. But in terms of trying to link uh, causally what happened because of the George Floyd protests with what happened on January 6th, while obviously alighting any responsibility that Donald Trump or the Republican Party might have had for those events is is patently ridiculous. Right, and, and the only reason why it's being brought up is to serve as, just to kind of drown out the main topic, to serve as like a, a, as a whataboutism. You know, there was a lot of talk about, you know, uh, President Biden's infrastructure plan where he had a lot more infrastructure than what most people consider infrastructure, and they're like, let's break this up. You know, they could just – this is the commission on one thing. Uh, if you want to raise an issue about some other thing, you can, you know, see if there's any interest in having a separate look into that. But you don't want to actually look into that, right? You right. Want- well, that's exactly what, like, Ron Johnson has been doing in the Senate for the last two years is that he's just constantly putting out reports from whatever committee he's on right. saying, like – 
I mean, it's just farts in the wind, right. ultimately. <laughs> but, like, that's what they can do if they want to do it. But it doesn't have anything to do with investigating this one event. And, it, and, it's, and it's obviously purely a way. What, what you're saying is, is right, that it's, it's political cover. But it is, in particular, it's, it's a way of throwing up flack and, and allowing Republicans in that context to avoid answering questions that they don't want to answer about January 6th precisely because they don't want to suffer the fate that Liz Cheney just did, right. right? Right. That they do not want to risk. McCarthy does not want to have to repeat himself or have to listen to tape of himself saying the things that he said about January 6th as he gets ready to try to become the Speaker of the House after the elections in 2022. Not when Elise Stefanik can play the same clips of herself defending Trump at every possible turn, right. right? And not saying those things that McCarthy did. He's just interested in holding on to his leadership position and hoping that they're going to be able to take back the House and he can be Speaker again. I, I, want, I, I wonder, uh, because as a strategy, this doesn't make any sense. It, it looks very weak on McCarthy's part because he initially kind of gave his blessing to have one of his people interact with the Democrats to kind of come up with a some sort of ground rules for how this will, was going to go. And right, and they gave, and Pelosi gave, and she gave, right. and she gave. Right. She said that it'll be 50-50. It'll be right. Each of us will have subpoena power. Right. We will be basically, as long as we just stick to the subject at hand, we're going to investigate this completely equally, and the Democrats will not be driving the bus on it any more than the Republicans are driving the bus on it. That was not a compromise that she had to make, right. considering the fact that she's the Speaker of the House and the Democrats are in power. Right. But she did all of that, and he still wouldn't. Come, he's still not going right. to come to the but, table but the, on it. The thing is, he, he must be a very bad strategist because going into it, he should have known that this was going to be the outcome. Because was he hoping that there was going to be some sort of derailment? Because like, was he ex counting on uh, Pelosi to 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 not uh, accept some of the conditions? Because right, or counting on counting on a few Democrats in the House Caucus to peel off right. and say that no, we don't want to do this either. Right, like it doesn't. None of it makes any fucking because sense. Because if you're counting on as a bad faith thing, let's make it look like we're into this, and then we'll make some demands that there's no way they're going to accept, and then we'll say we tried. But the Democrats wanted like a witch hunt instead of a, just like a, a a fair accounting of the events, and so we're out. Right. But it seems like they their bluff or his bluff was called, and now he's left saying, "Why aren't we talking about something else about the commission that's about one single the, the events of that day and the things leading up to that day?" Right? Like that is a right. very weak response, and it just looks like he just kind of got caught. Like I was kind of well, it's that's what happens when you're trying to thread the needle between the obvious horror of what Trump and Trumpism and the Trumpening all led to and having to maintain the fact that he's likely going to be the kingmaker for the Republican Party for the next three years at a minimum and almost certainly will be the presidential nominee in 24. I, I don't I don't see how even if uh, the Republicans win the House, how he's going to keep his – he seems to be like an – to be generous, like not a particularly uh, – smart person when it comes to strategizing and kind of getting ahead of things like this right. just looks and he's really not, bad he's obviously not particularly effective he doesn't and he doesn't or 
and he can't really speak for the pure Trumpist wing of the party right, because of the things that he said after January 6th. Because he's not that. Like, he, he can be like an opportunist and he'll carry whatever water so he can survive politically, but he's not that. Right. He's not Jim Jordan. Right. He's not Elise Stefanik who managed to some, who is somehow managed to put on that cloak, even yeah, though she's probably she's not that, either, that but she, either. Yeah, but she does a better job of being that. But like McCarthy just looks like, ugh, I got to just stomach more of this just so I can right. become speaker. All right. So uh, moving on to the Supreme Court, there was a piece in the Times yesterday or maybe the day before about Stephen Breyer and what they believe is a signal of his reluctance to retire this summer. He seems to be leaning no based on a speech that he gave uh, recently and it, and his longstanding opinion that... Justice should not... Lifetime appointees should not, uh, for political expediency, step... You know, like you should just retire... For, naturally not like when you die but like just whenever you want to when you think your time is up right that basically that uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was correct to not retire when she had the opportunity for Obama to select her replacement back in say 2013 or as late as 2014 potentially and that he seems to be the sort of person who believes that the ideological expedient thing and instead should maintain his honor as a judge and i like agree with him uh in principle right (laughs) right i mean uh he's absolutely correct but like does that matter in the real world uh i'm not i'm not as sure right but maybe you know uh the the other podcast uh that uh that i listened to uh the slate political gap fest there's this running gag where at the top of each episode one of the hosts imagines different scenarios where Stephen Breyer's retired, and he's like, you know, yeah. lecturing yeah. or something. And by the way, you people out there who are asking us to do bits, that's what you get when you do bits with this sort of show. It's not the sort of thing you actually want in practice. In theory, it sounds good, uh, less so It's in a practice. great, great – because basically it's one of those like, – it's so stupid, it just kind of circles back. But anyways, do you think that uh, – because what if he actually – like, I, I suspect – what if Breyer – does see himself retiring at some point, but he doesn't want it to be associated with the pressure from the left, right? So maybe he. Yeah, but then when when do you do no, it? No, no. But then? what I'm saying is maybe these efforts to say or signals to say no, 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 not anytime soon. Just so you know, the the news cycle is that there was this push. Uh, he he kind of rebuffed. They backed down, and then like early 22 or whatever, he. Although if he does it in this uh, political cycle, if he does cycle, it in twenty two yeah. and they have a split Senate still, <laughs> yeah, like what? True. Then what? Right. Or if if what if? I mean, I don't think this would. Have, this is just ridiculous. But like if November they lose, they lose just enough. Basically, it's like now like fifty one forty nine, right? Like it's a very right. tight thing. But it goes the other way, and during the lame duck, he retires, and then raw naked political power pushes through. In nominee, like in like late November or whatever, just kind of like you did this to us. So like, there's no way he would do that, right? So right, that would be even worse, obviously. Right. So basically, I mean, he could have probably signaled, uh, you know, like after the. This is very easy. So you're, we're overcomplicating it. He just needs to fake like uh, kidney cancer or, or <laughs> liver disease or something like that. He needs to pretend that he has a health emergency and he doesn't want to 
potentially spend his last six months away from his grandchildren or whatever the stupid story is. And then he fucking rides off into the sunset. In, and that's all good. Better still, in Supreme Court stationery, he writes that I've fallen and I can't get up. And then he just signs. He just <laughs> he's just fallen down the stairs and he's gone. Um, I mean, the solution here is one that we've presented before, or at least I have presented before. I can't remember how ridiculous you find my idea, but that the court should be expanded to ten people. And that they should be forced to retire after 20-year terms. So not lifetime, but just like fixed right, terms. You get a 20-year term. It's beyond uh, political influence at that point. One of the cases that underscores why people want Breyer to get off is the, the abortion case, right? These abortion right. cases that are making the rounds. And people are now concerned that the, the makeup of the Supreme Court is such that there's a real possibility that they're going to to restrict further restrict you know so basically i think the the case that they picked up is like a 15 week cutoff right out of out of mississippi right and 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 these laws were designed in such a way that they would work their way up basically that they were going to be challenged immediately work their way through the court system and then right it's it's effectively as direct a challenge to roe v wade as we've seen make it to the supreme court since like the 90s and right. whatever that other one yeah, was. Yeah, because like that Casey or versus Planned that some Pennsylvania right, right. thing. Casey versus Planned Parenthood, which is which relied on Roe, right, uh, and basically solidified it. Yeah, because and, and it was solidified by uh, Sandra Day O'Connor, basically like a Reagan appointee. So the Republicans have actually had, if you look at the last 40 years, they've gotten most of the Supreme Court nominees, but for whatever reason, otherwise conservative judges seem to kind of skew more moderate as they get older, which runs counter to conventional wisdom, right? Right. Well, the problem with that particular fact is that we've got some very young uh, and recently appointed conservative justices who likely have not skewed in any direction uh, since their appointments in in Barrett, Kavanaugh, and Gorsuch. But Barrett... I mean, Kavanaugh and Gorsuch have ruled in such a way that people are surprised, or at least Kavanaugh, I don't know, he's kind of all over the place, but he's been kind of more moder- more moderate than people anticipated. Not that he's yeah, a moderate. Yeah, but I don't, think that, I don't think that you can say that about something as fundamental to the conservative project over the last 40 years, especially when it comes to the judiciary as the abortion question. Right. So let me— and, let me ask you. I was just. I just want to wrap up the setup here, which is that the the question is is because it seems like an almost done deal that this thing is going to go in favor of the anti-abortion crowd. This this Mississippi case, just because it's it's a six to three conservative to liberal majority on the court, and the only question really is is Roberts going to be able to craft an opinion in such a way that he's able to write for the conservatives a relatively moderate or modest change to Roe that doesn't actually completely uh, flip the thing. Right. Or are the more hardcore conservatives on the court, uh, Barrett, Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, Alito, and Thomas, just going to write a fairly reactionary five to four decision that just completely upends the last 40 years of, of precedent? I— if I were a betting man, and I'm not, but or I am, just not a good one. I suspect that 
it's going to be a 5-4 against this uh, this law. This law is going to be struck down. So to be clear, that the conservative majority in this case is going to find a way to uphold Roe v. Wade. Right. Uh, not over. Yeah. So John Roberts and either Gorsuch or Kavanaugh, and I'm leaning towards Kavanaugh, will make up the five, you know, plus the three liberal justices. But the reason why I suspect it's going to go that way is first, this is a deliberate attempt to overturn something. Basically, it would kind of almost stain politically the Supreme Court if they were to allow cynical politicians on the lower level to get their way in this very obvious way. Something that Roberts, by the way, has talked about being something that bothers him right. in the past, right. basically, right? And it should, yeah, uh, because basically you're kind of like, you can achieve what you want th- through other means. Don't try to like kind of work the refs. But more broadly speaking, let me ask you this question. Do you recall the last time that the Supreme Court of the United States restricted something? Because all of the examples I can think of of the big cases, they've kind of loosened or liberalized. So like even conservative cases like gun rights, have, they have, there were restrictions on gun rights. They've loosened them. Uh, political campaign donations, laws were restricting it. They made it looser, this, the portion of the Civil Rights Act or, or the Voting Rights Act, that section, whatever, five, was a restriction where certain states had to get preclearance that has been loosened. Uh, and then obviously all of the liberal side stuff where they liberalized or loosened uh, previous uh, things. This would be one of the, more, the only ones that I can think of where they would contract or, or restrict something that has been around for going on 50 years, which would run counter to how they've always done things. They've always kind of... So the only other one that I can think of off the top of my head, since I'm not actually a Supreme Court scholar, uh, (laughs) instead just sometimes read the Wikipedia articles and like to uh, peruse decisions when they come down from SCOTUS blog. The only one that I can think of off the top of my head has to do with eminent domain and i think it was called kilo was it like in the last uh, like five years or like a while ago no it was like within the last 20 years i think okay um i think it's a post i think it's a post 9-11 style decision i'd have to look it up and i'm not going to bother with that right now but that's the only one i can think of off the top of my head that there was a restriction of rights and that had to do with the government being permitted to get away with uh, eminent domain in a way that they hadn't been previously. Okay. So yeah. Uh, so- but you're right. You're right. Certainly, most of the the larger cases have have gone in the other direction. And- even 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 on and yeah, that's what tracks between the con- the more conservative decisions and the more liberal decisions as far as these social things are concerned they've generally opened up right. rights rather just saying, than you're trying them. to do too much you're trying to achieve a certain outcome but you're going about it the wrong way so even with the bad outcomes we're going to loosen it and with the abortion issue a lot of the arguments in the past the foundational arguments were like there are competing interests between the woman and the state you know they have the state has an interest in the welfare of the child but that can overwhelm the interest of the actual person you know who's having the child right and so how do we find some sort of balance and so like there's the whole idea of viability once the ba- the, the the fetus is a viable uh, living being then the state has some interest to say maybe third term or whatever. We can do something. 
But the the bills that have kind of passed and the one in question is more like hard bill related or hard beat, right? So it's like early enough to where the baby is not viable, but they want the person who is pregnant to almost kind of be relegated to like some mindless vessel for other life. Like you have no say in things. And so I don't know how they can construct an argument to say that that's okay. That's why I'm, right. I, I understand conservative, you know, six to three and da 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 da. But I, I can't think of the argument that they will formulate to say that it, even though there is no viability argument. Uh, well, the, the problem is that you don't have to read too many Kavanaugh opinions to find out that he's willing to say pretty much anything. Right. And it doesn't have to have any real basis in anything. And he's not the best justice out there when it comes to basing his opinions in precedent and and known law. Right. He did work And certainly backwards. that, I mean, to say what you will about Thomas, but at least he is tends to couch his shit in the Constitution, even when you disagree with him uh, about whether or not uh, that's valid. Right. Like, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I don't particularly want to make a prediction about what's going to happen. I do know that Roberts is going to fight hard to make sure that it doesn't completely overturn Roe v. Wade because of it would have a dramatic impact on the legitimate, the legitimacy of the court in, in a lot of people's eyes, not to mention the fact that it would be a crazy sudden change. Right. There are 10 states that have trigger laws in place that would immediately ban abortion if Roe were overturned. And there are nine others in some of them in more blue states where this would probably, they wouldn't really go into effect, but there are nine other states in addition to the 10 with the trigger laws that have old laws that have never been repealed that simply haven't been enforced over the course of the last 50 years uh, that would could conceivably be enforced again if Roe were overturned. Right. We had one more Supreme Court note here, which we can talk about the Supreme Court since Lori's not here to give me shit about it. Um, but real quick, there's this other case about non-unanimous verdicts in the Supreme Court, yeah. or non-unanimous verdicts in Louis specifically in Louisiana and Oregon, and the court this week uh, ruled that their ruling from last year, which banned non-unanimous verdicts in Oregon and Louisiana, and just because that's the only place where they, they still existed, is not going to be retroactive. So you do not get to automatically get a new trial if your case was decided non-unanimously in the past. It's not okay going forward, but it does not guarantee you a new trial if it happened uh, before last year. So these are basically 10-2 or 11-1 kind of things still getting a conviction where you would, you know, I think common knowledge, if you ask the average Joe or Jane, they would assume that that you need you need consent you need unanimous you know to to convict and and you, right you, and I think it was the case in capital cases everywhere but in non capital cases in Louisiana and Oregon as recently as a couple of years ago you could get non unanimous convictions and apparently the history of that has a great deal to do with trying to make sure that you can get convictions of black people if there's a black person, one or two black people on the jury right? Uh, who might be holdouts. Yeah, despite all efforts to get them out with the preemptory stuff and other ways to, to get rid of jurors, I don't know how that non-unanimous 
rule uh, lines up with the beyond the reasonable doubt thing. Because like if there's a 10 to 2, that's inherently not beyond. The- right. For a couple of people, there's some doubt right. there, obviously. Right. So like how, how can that, that to me – but and, and also – Right. And what's funny is the so the court got this right last year, effectively. Right. right. So in a six to three decision last year, they said non-unanimous verdicts are bogus and we can't have them anymore. And then this year they turn around and they say uh, there is no such thing as grandfathering in or out or like whatever, however you want to call it, the the the, the rule in. Or the, the thing that they're referring to in, in criminal procedure is something called watershed rules, which goes back to a case from 1992 where the court ruled that if a case changed the rules of criminal procedure so fundamentally that it would have a watershed effect on all of the cases before it. And what the court said, what the court ruled this year is that because we've never come up with a watershed rule in criminal procedure in the intervening 30 years since 1992 when that precedent was set that effectively it doesn't exist like that was that's Kavanaugh's argument in his latest thing is this 1992 precedent since we've never had something in the intervening years that applied to that rule then the practical reality of the situation must be that it never existed. And even though we have a moment, right. even though we're looking in the face right. right now at something that would perfectly well qualify because it's been since 1992 and we've never had the opportunity to do it before, that must just simply be a mistake. Right. And, and I maybe, you know, I'm not a Supreme Court justice, but if you conclude that something is unconstitutional, doesn't that also mean that it was never constitutional? Like, basically, how, how do you say – so there was a period of time that this was constitutional, so you have to just kind of go forward. Because you can maybe conceive of that being okay in, like, other settings, like lower-level things. But, like, are, I'm just trying to wrap my head around it. Are they saying that the the prosecutors, they were operating under the 10 is enough and had – they – been told that you needed all 12, that they would have reconstructed their argument and got the conviction anyway? Right. Well, it's because the court doesn't want to go. They want... It's important that when a court comes to a decision and it was as applied by the law, right, and it was a fair outcome according to everybody who was involved at that point, presumably, save for the defense attorneys and the and the defendant himself, that the court determined that this was the correct outcome, that the Supreme Court doesn't want to come in and invalidate... 40 years or 100 years worth of what were up till this point perfectly lawful rulings. And that that's sort of what Kavanaugh and the conservatives are saying this time around. Right. But they would also have to say that it's only a miscarriage of justice going forward. It was totally fine in the past. Which Right. It, it's not particularly yeah. coherent. Yeah. Uh, and it's not it's certainly not good. Um, but anyway, that wraps up our uh, Supreme Court talk. We can quickly talk about I don't know. We have anything to say about the the pipeline cyber attack from a couple of weeks well, ago that we somehow d- didn't talk about? A couple of things till now on that is that it's oh, Lori's here. You, Hang on, let me turn on Lori's microphone. You, you missed Scotus talk. That was the best part. Oh, I don't have my computer. Hold on. Lori will be here in just a minute. She's got to get her computer. Do we have anything to say about the pipeline attacks? Well, there are two things. One, the shortage is what it was basically just a run on the gas. It wasn't. The shortage, I mean, maybe now it is, but like the immediate 
shortage was because people were panic buying. Um, and the second part is that it's basically confirmed that they paid the ransom, right? Uh, yeah, they paid five million dollars. It looks like to uh, to get the pipeline turned back on. It, and I know it's discouraged to do so, but if they got through, then just pay them. You know, kind of try to talk them down. But to me, it seems to be a stupid thing to continue this. Don't negotiate with these people because it's going to encourage them. They get enough money from people to continue doing this, right? So you should avoid being in this position in the first place by patching up whatever vulnerabilities you have. But once you're exposed, to me, it's kind of like, you know, like when delivering a pizza and you're being robbed. I mean, take all the precaution to like not have more than 20 bucks on you and other things. But when the gun's pointed at you, just give it up, you know? Right. Wait, so... They all they wanted five million dollars. They probably talk them down. They probably wanted more. Are they Doctor Evil? So, <laughs> what's funny is that this collective they call They're themselves. Like an and they sort? seem they right. They seem to operate out of Russia, though there's oh not any gosh. clear indication that they work with or for the Russians. They just are of Russia. Right. They're called Dark Side, and they sort of fashion themselves as. The Robin Hood type of thieves, where they don't actually want to do widespread damage to the everyday human being. They would rather just go after these big, uh, as they see them, evil corporations and governments. And so they were sort of uh, not quite expecting to be able to cause this, the damage to American infrastructure that they suddenly realized they had the power to do when they were able to shut down an entire vital artery of American energy when they shut down the colonial pipeline a couple weeks ago. And so maybe, yeah, they could have gotten like who knows how much money because the Biden administration, the Biden administration absolutely would have, if for no other reason than political expediency, been forced to fork over a giant pile right. of money to get the the gas moving Because aren't again. they losing money anyways the further this drags on? You, you, you've been had. You are totally exposed to them, right? So talk them down as much as you can, and hopefully they did talk them down. Five million wasn't the opening uh, demand, but after that, avoid these situations. It just doesn't. I don't understand why these. Right. Well, the best part about the story is that shortly after the the news broke, somebody found a job listing for Colonial <laughs> in cybersecurity, oh, right. like fr- from just a month earlier. So they they were hiring. Yeah. Because uh, it's just not. Do you think there's there's insurance for this? Because you know, like in. Oh yeah, absolutely. So what's funny is like we hadn't heard a story like this in a couple of years, or at least I hadn't. It was a big deal a couple of years ago that I, you know, the way these things come and go in the media. I assume that this is an ongoing problem, but it had been a little while since this sort of thing had been in the news a bunch. Because you're often hearing about like smaller sized or medium sized cities that had like the the back end of their software taken over by one of these groups right. and and like people couldn't pay the parking tickets online anymore right. Right. And, and they had access to all sorts of things and they shut down the the city computers and and cities basically either pay or they have to get a whole new computer system up and running in the next couple of days uh, or people aren't going to be able to pay their utility bills and the the sort of cascading problems that that come from that. Right. Uh, and this has happened at like hospitals and places like that. So maybe that's the distinction that they're trying to draw, that we we demand money from 
companies that, you know, it's, there's no immediate harm to life or whatever. Like, we're trying to do this right. other thing. Also, you know, somebody was floating out this idea, which I always find amusing, especially in this era of the social media. But basically to say the media drove the panic, you know. So, like, if NBC yes. News did not... Uh, you know, show I've it. been saying all week, this is why we don't deserve free press. Right, but, because people clearly can't handle information. But 30 years ago, possibly that could have worked. I, don't, I, I can't imagine uh, with Nextdoor and, you know, Reddit and Twitter that... It would be so much worse if everybody in the neighborhood opened up Twitter or their Nextdoor app or Facebook, their, their Facebook neighborhood group. Right. And all of a sudden, people are talking about how there's no gas anywhere in town except at these three stations. And it's like, why is the media being silent about this? Like, no, it the panic been would be fine. so much worse. It would, it, there wouldn't have been a shortage if people hadn't bought all the gas. But, but, but the word would have The spread. moment that half a dozen gas stations across town start running out of gas, I, that's a fucking story. And it, if it's not going to show up on the nightly news, it will show up in the Facebook group. Right, but, and it's better... But 30 years ago, right. Abe is saying, w- it would have been fine. It would have been ethical. Like 30, if you could get away with it, if, if you could have like a blackout, kind of almost like this is like a streaker. You know, one got past them during the Super Bowl recently, but they've been doing a pretty good job of just not showing streakers to kind of discourage yeah, But what do you do the moment the streaker happens on television? Because I know what I do. What? I open up Twitter <laughs> and search the proper hashtags I don't do that. to try to find the person in the crowd who's uploading a live stream of the fucking streaker, That's right? right? I need to see the highlight. <laughs> That's true. But yeah, basically, the, 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 the barn is out of the horses, I always say on this. Even if you wanted to, the word would spread so quickly and, and, and it would sow even more distrust in the mainstream outlets. So it right. could have worked in the past and I would have been for it, you know, but. All right. Quickly, we'll do AT&T selling off Warner Media and the associated uh, properties, including... Oh, goody. I came just in time for the stuff I have stuff to say about. Including HBO Nothing like Max. media mergers. <laughs> you know, th- th- there's so much movement on this. All I wanted to know was, like, how does this impact my HBO Max? Am I getting, like, Discovery channels now? So they won't sort any of that out for, like, at least the next Ooh. year or two. Apparently... The, the plan is to keep, or at least the initial thought, is that they want to keep them separate and possibly bundle them the way that uh, Disney bundles Hulu and the ESPN Plus or whatever they call that app where you can get just Disney Plus or you can add in the other things for oh, extra like X amount of dollars. That stuff, yeah. uh, this is bad for consumers, despite me reading like a dozen different articles about how great this is going to be for consumers. Is that the take? For for precisely the reason that you just said, which is, ooh, am I going to get all those fucking trashy uh, Discovery Channel Discovery Plus. reality shows now for free? Yeah. Or at a discount? And the answer is, yeah, probably you will be able to get both Disney Plus and, or not Disney. You'll be able to get HBO Max and the Discovery Plus thing uh, relatively cheap to what you would be paying for it if they remain separate companies in the short term but that doesn't mean it's ultimately good for consumers right and i would i would point to things as currently in the news as roku and google continuing to go to war about whether or not roku is going to even carry youtube tv Uh, isn't that already they're on the outs right because i think google's try to strong arm roku because they wanted certain 
preferential treatment and Roku's like fuck that and and now I don't have Roku anymore but like if I did so we can still we can still watch Google uh, YouTube TV on our Roku but if we were to delete the app or try to mm. install it fresh for the first time apparently oh so uh, there's reason to believe we wouldn't be able to do that and so they added a back door into YouTube TV via the YouTube app so that's Google's way of really giving Roku the finger, which is that you can try to keep us off your platform, but we're just going to let people in the back door through the YouTube app. Uh, and you're certainly, you certainly don't have the balls to ban the YouTube app from your Roku devices because people would really be pissed off. Right. It's interesting because, I mean, Roku is almost serving as like a common carrier. Basically, any sort of app can be on this thing. And usually they're the ones that are being the dicks. But now it's actually one of the apps is much stronger and bigger and they're trying to set the terms and they're saying we'll just take our shit somewhere else if you don't abide right to say nothing of like the the way that this i feel like my parents are fighting <laughs> with youtube and Roku yeah, fighting. right we like we i used to love google google fucking sucks now yeah but that's I, no, a whole nother don't. bigger don't story because their google search algorithms are, are off the shit i've been saying this for five years yeah. right but the ability of a one of these giant uh, media property companies to throw their weight around also uh, with regard to the rates that they get from tra traditional cable outlets, right. which are fights that we've seen many times, basically every couple of football seasons. It happens. Uh, one of the networks is fighting with one of the – with Xfinity or with, with Charter or with Cox or Verizon about carrier rates and how much ESPN is going to charge. If you pile enough of these networks into one uh, mega corporation – then all of a sudden, uh, you're not going to be able to get HBO on Charter for six months at a time because those two companies are fighting with one another. Right. In addition to now 60 other channels that you're interested in. And because they have that much power, they can bend Charter over the – I mean, and there's nothing wrong with taking Comcast to the fucking cleaners right. as far as I'm concerned. Right. But if Comcast also is in bed with NBC, then they're no longer going to be interested in bothering with – uh, providing HBO a platform if if they just want to rent out Peacock to people uh, relatively cheaply. Right. Maybe this is already a uh, a rule, but it's just not enforced. But you know, a lot of the times when these big companies try merge, they gotta go through the Department of Justice or you know some sort of thing to where it's not like a any trust issue. They should probably, if there isn't a law, make a law, or if there is one, they should enforce it uh, to where. You can't do this. You can't throw your weight around against other companies to try to achieve these right, things. Right, but that's impossible. They should they should they should just not be permitted to become as big as they are. Right. Like this this is something that is going to go through even though it obviously shouldn't. And what's amazing is that then they will use the fact of this going through to justify ones that even more shouldn't right. go through, right? Right. Because now this this sort of move puts a great deal more pressure on the people at uh, CBS Viacom and NBC Universal to work something out. And now you're not, then you're talking about NBC gobbling up CBS. That would and never that happen. That means eliminating. That would never happen. Like a third of the network news. And NBC, in this ABC, country. and CBS will never, in any combination, merge. I would like to believe it, but Viacom has been moved around, and the Viacom-CBS thing has been so fucked up over the course of the last 25 years or so with the goofy Redstone yeah, family that, old, that it, yeah. it, it would not surprise me at all to see 
Comcast and NBC Universal somehow find a way to gobble up CBS. And and that's a that's a fucking nightmare. That's the that's the big one. Yeah. There are smaller ones. Amazon apparently is about to buy up MGM, which by the way, you follow the history of MGM through the years and the different media properties that have owned them in going back to uh, Ted the Ted Turner days at, at TBS. That's an interesting M- story. MGM and is, it's, uh, it's a story that they just That was Disney. They just always lose money. Like, but then they like make, Ted Turner buys MGM and then has to sell it at a haircut like six <laughs> months later. Like, and it's the same thing that's happening here. AT&T is taking a massive loss on this Warner Media property. And it just it's not good for anyone. Isn't uh, MGM, what do they have? Uh, the Bond movies or is that someone else? Like they don't seem to have too many big. They have the Wizard of Oz. Yeah, they got Wizard of Oz. They've got still I think Casablanca in rotation. They have like hundreds and hundreds of, of, of classic movies. <laughs> Uh, and and a bunch of television, including I think actually Survivor. Well, I, think I, read no, that. That's a, I thought that was a CBS, Viacom, Paramount, whatever. I think well, but the way that the different distribution deals are done, I think they that's actually owned by MGM. Oh, okay. But anyway, Anyhow. that's a long-standing thing of mine that that bums me out. You're obviously. right, Abe. James Bond. Yeah. Bob has been really into James Bond lately. By the way, that's true. Well, you can turn on the that goofy Pluto TV, yeah. which is yeah, they're giving you free which content. Is free on. Yeah, it's just free, and you can turn it on. And, you and can it's watch. almost always James Bond. <laughs> I mean, there's nothing else there. You watch, like, fucking... It's the James Bond maybe, app, really. Maybe that's why they're losing all this money, because <laughs> they're giving it away for free. <laughs> Man, GoldenEye is... Speaking of which, watching GoldenEye the other night. Ridiculous. I, I, played, uh, I think that was the first James Bond movie I saw in theaters, I, and what the, I was 12 and super into it, it but that is, a, that is not a great movie. I've played that game I don't know how many times. I've never seen the actual movie. I didn't know those, uh, like, the game it's is It's not good. good. Yeah. We watched a little of it. It's, I mean, it's a very dated. Yeah. All right, real quick, uh, baseball story here before we get to the end. Goody. Tony La Russa, oh, who's boy. been hired after we thought we were done with fucking Tony La Russa <laughs> when he retired from the Cardinals a few years ago. And he got caught up in like the Houston and Cardinals cheating scandal. I don't remember how exactly, but it wasn't good. It wasn't a good look for old Tone. Um, anyway, the Chicago White Sox hired Tony La Russa this season, and by all accounts, he's been doing a terrific job. I mean, he's a great baseball manager, of course, old school baseball How man. How old is Tony? Like 120 years old? How old is this guy? I think he's in his mid to late 70s. He's probably 70, I don't know, 75, 76. Let me, let me check that. Tony. Larissa. He's got to be over that. He's got to be like 81. He is 76 years I old. Know. I absolutely nailed it. In a couple of years, he could be president. All right. So the other day, Monday night, White Sox Twins game which I'm glad we're recording here on a Tuesday night. I'm glad that we completely trashed the Monday night <laughs> thing just so that we can talk about this. There's a, a catcher for the White Sox. is a young buck named Yerman Mercedes, uh, which is a terrific baseball name. Yeah. Uh, he hit a 429-foot home run in the ninth inning to give his team a 16-4 to lead. And that did not sit well with the manager, his coach, the manager of the Chicago White Sox. Was it like a solo homer or like a... Yeah, it's a solo home run. Uh, the, the problem that La Russa had is that 
This was a 3-0 pitch in a game that was well out of hand. The pitch was by someone named Williams Estrudio, or Estadio, and he's a position player. He's not actually a pitcher. Okay. So the, the Twins had decided we're not going to waste any more pitchers on this game. This game is bullshit. It's a loss, yeah. We're just going to put a utility infielder or outfielder out there. And he was throwing 47-mile-per-hour pitches to this guy who just lives to mash taters. Like, that's what Yerman Mercedes does. He gets up there, and he tries to mash the shit out of the ball. That's his whole job. And so what Tony La Russa is saying is that he should have just been up there I don't know, bunting yeah, yeah, or like, trying to swing and miss. That would also not be good, right? You up fifteen four and you're bunting. That South Park episode there where they play baseball. <laughs> here's what here's what Larusa said after the game. He said he made a mistake. There will be a consequence he has to endure here within our family. He's referring to the guy who hit a home run for his team. Right. He's going to pay some sort of fucking price. <laughs> For having whacked a 47-mile-an-hour fastball 450 feet into the center field stands. I, I, I get that these are unwritten rules, but are they also unspoken? Like, do, Is there any player in the major leagues that's not aware of these goofy rules? In this situation, it would be rude to do this. In that situation, it would be rude to do that. It is so screamingly obvious to me that if anybody broke the unwritten rules of baseball— it was the Twins by putting in a player who cannot pitch in a Major League Baseball game at the end of a game. That is not fair play. Right. That is not playing the game the way it's meant to be played. Right. On the other hand, that dude standing at home plate trying to send the ball to the fucking stratosphere, that's his whole job. That's what baseball right. is, right? And if you're going to put a clown up there to throw a 47-mile-an-hour pitch, when I throw harder than that— you could send me out there to do that fucking job. Like, what is the point here? What is La Russa actually complaining about? I don't get help. it. Not to mention the fact that this guy's entire, like, he's probably on something approaching a rookie deal where he's getting, he, he had no choice in what his salary is. And he, he's only going to get two or three opportunities in his entire lifetime to negotiate a contract. And if you think that a home run, one more home run doesn't matter in, in the way that his contract is going to be formulated. You're out of your goddamn mind. Right, because, yeah, the game may be out of hand, but this is a good opportunity to showcase his talents. And I don't know. That, that to, to me, seems to be kind of weird because why not just deal with it? He, he's sending us a message to, I guess, the baseball community that it's being handled because he could have just internally said, hey, I know what you're, you know, you're trying to— Help, right? But. Sure. That that is that is to be fair. That is one good way of looking at this from a an apologist's perspective, which is that Tony Larusa recognizes that there's now a target on this guy's back because he apparently did something wrong. When like it's clear to me that he didn't do anything wrong. But if if the twins are super mad about this and they're trying and they're thinking about plunking him in the hip right. the next time he comes up to the plate where he might have to miss a couple of games, maybe LaRusse is just looking out for his guy and looking out for his team. My guess is that LaRusse is just a cranky old fuck yeah, and actually believes that this was the wrong thing to do, right. which I don't understand because, again, if there's any fault to be found here, it's in the twins coaching staff for deciding to send somebody out there to pitch who can't actually pitch. 
and all, by the way, because they're trying to maintain a competitive advantage in the game the next day, right? That's the only reason that you don't send a reliever right. out there is because you don't want to waste an yeah, arm on a game your, yeah. that's already out of right. hand. So they're, they're the ones that are doing the thing that is bogus here, right. not your guy who hit the tater. They shouldn't even field a pitcher. Just what about that guy that got hit in the face? That sucks. Yeah, that was no good. I got all kinds of alerts about it on my phone, as though I know who it is or who he plays for. It was Kevin Pillar of the Mets. And he I was... don't know who that is. Why does my phone think I care so about he was that? Beamed, he was being right in the fucking face by Jacob Webb, a Braves pitcher. Just a horrifying thing to have happen. And, of course, you go on Twitter, which is a terrible place to go. And like even in baseball context, where they somebody shows a a picture of Jacob Webb being consoled by his coaches and teammates in the dugout because he was so visibly upset and crying about the fact that he just launched a fucking fastball right, right yeah. into this guy's face as though he were trying to kill him, right? Which obviously he, he wasn't. Was awful. But like it's it's got to be one of the worst feelings that you can experience on a baseball field when it doesn't involve your face right. getting pummeled <laughs> by a ball. Right. Yeah. Like it's that's about as bad as it gets. And the commentary under the thing is like What's the big fu fucking man up? What are you doing? Are you sad about you the fact that... You absolutely have to stop reading Twitter. <laughs> yeah, I really should. <laughs> like, you can't talk about anything without talking about what strangers who are stupid think about it. <laughs> this is the world we live in. No, you've it's been... the world you live in! <laughs> you've been listening to Cast Iron Brains, a podcast with Bob and Abe. Lori is here, too. How are you doing, Lori? fine she's fine you can find the show on facebook or twitter also look us up just head to castironbrains.com you'll be quickly redirected to another website called brainiron.com which has blogs and podcasts and all sorts of fun things to look at the opening and closing themes of the show were composed by mark gillig put up a new blog at the site last week you should check out i think we talked about it oh, earlier yeah the good news is that I think it finally pushed my election forecast game off the front page of the blog, so it's not staring me in the face anytime I go to the website. Bob's not good at completing projects. Since I still haven't done that. Just uh, in general, I can't think of a thing that he's completed since 2007. Well, you know, 56 episodes of Cast Iron Brain. We'll yeah, this is an ongoing thing. That's why it works for you. Just like the bamboo and the poison ivy. What else have we been getting into? We uh, we watched the Angelina Jolie movie. Uh, uh, that's right. Yes, but... See me if you want me to die or... You ask for those who wish me those, dead. Yeah, to those, those? To those? For, those? for I think whom? It's just those, those who wish me dead. Yeah. We talked about it last night. But, yeah, yeah. It, it kind of sucked. But you guys won't hear that. What about you, Abe? You went to the movies, didn't you? Yeah, I went to go see that uh, Saw movie with Chris Rock. Not particularly yeah. good. Another classic? No. <laughs> this is like the third of the Saws that I've seen out of the total nine. Among the lowest of the bunch. So what is it with American franchise? So this is like, I guess this is not new. Because there were like 11 Freddy Krueger movies. And there were a bunch of the uh, the Halloweens, right? Right. Screams and well, but Scream only got like three or four. But like, there's 
coming up on nine of the Fast and the Furious movies. Those Rocky. all fucking are stupid. Transformers. There, there was a. Uh, Speaking of that, somebody was making the point that like if you watch the very first Fast and Furious, it's like they're like stealing VCRs, and now they're like, I don't know what's going on. Like it seems like right. it's kind of gone way beyond the original purpose. But people, you know, people like comfort food, known products, and you know, they know what this thing is. You know, Mission Impossible or Saw or Rocky. Oh, they stopped doing that. I guess. Chris Rock is one of our finest actors, so I imagine that. Uh, oh, that's right. That you got to see an Oscar-worthy performance they, this weekend. He and uh, Samuel L. Jackson were playing father and son, and uh, they had to do some uh, flashbacks. And uh, some of the the looks that they had uh, inspired a lot of laughter in the audience. Uh, there were a lot of people that could not take it seriously. Derisive laughter. Yes. Such disrespect. <laughs> like laughing through the whole flashback. Like they just the entire time he had like a fake hairdo, they just couldn't stop laughing. It's like no, no jokes, just the, their face. Well, I think this went better than last night did. I feel uh, I feel better about it anyway. Uh-huh. How about you? Ah, not too shabby. So serious question: Did you share at all in my feeling that last night was a disappointment, or am I? just an actual crazy person you are a disappointment for for even considering i think this was a cleaner show because it's a sec you know but like last night was fine you know (laughs) you were a cranky pants you were a cranky pants yeah and you could have just not done the thing if you don't want to do it now you're in a good mood because you think you've got shit all figured out so you're in a good mood. Yeah, I mean, it's just obviously better. I'll release both it's episodes. It's awfully rich, by the way, for you to point out that other people think that they've got it all figured out when you are also that. Yeah, but I I try to do my best to not... Uh, like I said, I think in the first couple episodes of of Cast Iron Brains... We're not going to have takes here as as much as possible. It's, you it, literally they opened sound, this with they sound saying like you were takes. figuring out what your they take have, is. You used the word. You'll f- hear. They have the shape of takes, right. but they're not actually <laughs> takes. Other people have made takes, uh, give, given takes a bad name. You know, nothing wrong with a good take. Yeah. Abe, you, uh, you got anything else for us tonight? <laughs> yeah, I do, actually, Bob. Uh, did you? Oh, good, good. <laughs> Did you know that CNN news anchor Jake Tapper, you know, resistance hero, father of girls, and all-around total hunk of a man, is also a successful novelist? His latest book, a sequel to 2018's The Hellfire Club, is out now, and it's called The Devil May Dance. The story, set in the 1960s, centers around a New York congressman on an errand for Attorney General Bobby Kennedy— to investigate some mob activity and murders in California and Las Vegas, and prominently features some fun and less-than-legal exploits of the legendary Rat Pack, including Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin. Anyhow, Tamper had been promoting the book on Twitter and Instagram, of course, uh, as any proud author with a substantial following would. His brilliant marketing ploy this time around, aside from getting interviewed on his own news networks across multiple news programs, about his forthcoming novel, seems to be 
sending a bunch of copies of the book out to his celebrity friends, posting photos of themselves reading the Surefire bestseller. So far, he's received ringing endorsements from no less than literary luminaries like Amy Schumer, Paul Rudd, Julia Louise Drivis, you know, Elaine, and Conan O'Brien. So, if you're looking for some exciting summertime reading, why not take a chance on upstart Jake Tapper? What more could you be looking for in a book than a nostalgic historical thriller written by that smarmy guy on TV at 15-minute increments? (laughs) I guess that's all we've got for tonight, then, and we'll talk to you next time. Later. Nobody, nobody better buy that fucking book. No actual human being. What should they buy instead? Who's not just trying to get a retweet from Jake fucking Tapper should buy that book or read that book. What if I really want a retweet from Jake Tapper? Fuck Jake Tapper, who goes on Brian Stelter's reliable sources on CNN to get interviewed about his fucking novel. Fuck him, who gets interviewed by Don Lemon on his own network about his fucking book. Do you give him nonsense? any credit for not having a ghostwriter that he devotes upwards of 15 minutes a day by himself writing books? I mean, you got to give him some credit, a little depth. Two novels written in 15-minute chunks. What an asshole. I cannot imagine <laughs> someone actually choosing to read a novel by Jake Tapper. He's going to show up on someone's, like, I'm sure Oprah or one of those people that has summer... Fun time book club reads. Then it's not too bad. Murder, exploits, the Rat Pack, <laughs> Bobby Kennedy. Fucking <laughs> way. If, if, if my Fulton County Library had this available, I uh, I can make a commitment oh, yet. Yeah. Should, should, that should be our next uh, <laughs> fucking, uh, what do you call it? Content. Content. Oh, yeah. All right. Thanks for doing this again. Oh, no Sorry problem. I made you do it. Fun. All right. Good, Good night. Anyway, did you watch 60 Minutes this weekend? This week? I, I did. Forge they... into the second hour of this podcast that I know I'm not going to want to publish. <laughs> but yeah, I, I don't think that you can rule out the possibility that it is some sort of craft from some sort of other civilization and that we have that because we only understand the physics that we understand, right? Right. Uh, right. And we, we only understand the world to be limited in ways that comport with our understanding. And the moment that we advance our understanding beyond where we currently are, then all sorts of new things become possible. And for all we know, there's an advanced civilization that knows how to manipulate physical reality in not just the four dimensions that we're familiar with, but the dimensions beyond that, right? That Okay, so... By the way, you're saying on the record that that is more likely than Russia or China or, you know, some other country? Or the U.S. Or is the U.S. the leader in the clubhouse and then another civilization and then one of the... Yes, it's the United States and then it's interdimensional beings (laughs) and then it's... Russia. (laughs) Russia. Boy, our Russian and Chinese listeners are going to be pissed at you. (laughs) All right. You got uh, anything else for us tonight? Nope. What about fucking Chick-fil-A sauce shortage, Abe, yeah. in Oklahoma? We didn't talk about the gas shortage either. And the gas shortage. <laughs> Nothing, really? <laughs> I guess that's all we've got for tonight, then. Talk to you next time. Later. I do have to tell you something. Not You can stop recording. Um, oh, we got to salvage something out of this fucking no, awful 90 I minutes. No, I intentionally so, yeah. waited. Okay. <laughs>